Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, not Philippians. Taking a little detour today. Lord willing, we'll be back in Philippians next week. Um, today is my installation service, so I thought it would be appropriate to go to 2 Corinthians and uh, see some truths that Paul lays out for us, some very weighty truths. So I didn't tip off the first service. Let me tip you off. This is a very weighty sermon, a very heavy sermon. Um, so I just want to give you an advance warning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Hear the words of the gracious God. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us so that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that because of Jesus' perfect life and his perfect death and his perfect resurrection, that you look upon him and you count us free, that his work on our behalf satisfies you, God. So we thank you for that this morning. We recognize our dependence upon you. Father, apart from your spirit helping us, we will not learn and be changed this morning. So we ask you by your grace to transform us by your spirit as we open your word. Would you help me to preach and teach so that we understand the weighty truth that we're going to look at? And would you make us a people who display your glory? Because that's what life is about. And that's what eternity is about. Would you help us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Misunderstandings can be deadly. Um, this is seen in an episode of The Twilight Zone titled To Serve Man. You must know that about me because there will probably be many Twilight Zone episodes that pop up as illustrations in my sermons. One of my favorite shows. In this episode called To Serve Man... The episode opens in a man named Michael Chambers is seen lying uncomfortably on a cot in a Spartan interior. And then a voice implores him to eat. He refuses. He asks, what time is it on earth? And he begins to tell the story of how he came to be here aboard this spaceship. And then it goes back to this flashback. You see, the Canamites, a race of nine-foot-tall aliens land on the earth. One of them addresses the United Nations, vowing that his race's motive in coming to earth is solely to help humanity. Initially wary of the intentions of an alien race who came quite uninvited, even skeptical international leaders begin to be persuaded of the aliens' benevolence as the Canamites share their advanced technology, quickly putting an end to many of Earth's greatest woes, including hunger. Energy becomes very cheap. Nuclear weapons are rendered harmless. The aliens even, even morph deserts into big blooming fields. 
Trust in the Canamites seems to be justified when Patty, one of a staff of U.S. government cryptographers led by Mr. Chambers, cracks the title of a Canamite book the spokesman left behind at the U.N. Its title, she reveals, is To Serve Man. Soon, humans are volunteering for trips to the Canamites' home planet, which is portrayed as a paradise. With the Cold War ended, the code-breaking staff has no real work to do, but Patty is still trying to work out the meaning of the text of the Canamites' book titled To Serve Man. The day arrives for Mr. Chambers' excursion to the Canamites' planet. Just as he mounts the spaceship's boarding stairs, his staffer, Patty, appears. He waves smiling, but she runs toward him in great agitation and is held back by a Canamite guard. Mr. Chambers, Patty cries, don't get on that ship. The rest of the book to serve man, it's, it's, it's a cookbook. Chambers tries to run back down the spaceship stairs, but a Canamite wrestles him into the ship and it immediately takes off for the alien's home planet. It's a classic episode. The humans on earth assumed that the book titled To Serve Man meant to serve or to assist or to help. Unfortunately, it meant to serve as a meal. A slight misunderstanding. We don't have to be invaded by nine-foot-tall aliens named Canamites in order to experience misunderstandings. Too often, ministry in a church suffers from misunderstandings misunderstandings can be deadly, especially if a church and its pastor don't understand their responsibilities and their relationship. Today is my installation service, and we have David Yetter here from Converge, our denomination. He'll be leading us through the installation service after the sermon. But before he comes, I want to lay out to you, before you, what God expects of you and what God expects of me as congregation and pastor. I'll be sharing some thoughts later from Lemuel Haynes, who is one of my heroes. Lemuel Haynes has totally altered my understanding that the role of of eternity, what it plays in the relationship between a pastor and his flock. Haynes was the very first African-American pastor ordained to the ministry by any religious group in America. He was licensed to preach on November 29, 1780, and was ordained five years later. He was also the very first African-American pastor to receive an honorary master's degree in 1804. And he has taught me so much about misunderstandings and how they can be deadly. That's what we'll see in today's passage. The Corinthian church has completely misunderstood the Apostle Paul. And they've bought into the lies of these false teachers that have crept into the church body. And Paul is writing to correct their misunderstanding. The first truth that we'll see to emerge from this text is this. Ministry empowered by God's grace glorifies God. Look at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. What Paul says in this verse is nothing short of a counterattack on one of many charges being leveled against him by the false teachers. Paul had postponed a trip to visit the Corinthian church. The false teachers are saying, see, he doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. He said he was going to be here on this date. He changed his plans. See how fickle he is. 
And so Paul is writing to share with the church just how deep his affections and his devotion and ministry to them all. Paul counters by saying that all that he has done in and among and towards the Corinthian church stems from sincerity. And Paul says that he boasts. The idea here is not one of arrogance, but it's one of confidence. There's this, it has an exultation kind of nature to it. He's rejoicing or he's confident. He boasts. What is the source of Paul's boasting? It says there in verse 12, the testimony of our conscience. Paul appeals to his conscience. He's heard the charges leveled against him by the false teachers. The Corinthians are buying into their lies. But Paul's conscience rises up and says, these accusations are not true. What does Paul's conscience say? Verse 12, we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. By simplicity, Paul means this. It's a single-mindedness, a straightforwardness, a candor, an honesty. What Paul is saying is he's saying, I have shot straight with you. From the very beginning, everything that I've done towards you, I've been honest and open. He also says he's been sincere, which means kind of a purity of motive. It's this Greek word which combines two other words. It's the sun's heat and to judge. It's as if Paul is saying, my motives have been exposed by the heat of the sun of God, and I'm pure in my motives towards you. Paul would have affirmed Lemuel Haynes, one of my heroes. Lemuel Haynes said this, those who properly expect to give an account will be very careful to examine themselves with respect to the motives by which they are influenced to undertake in this work. He will view himself acting in the presence of a heart-searching God who requires truth in the inward part and will shortly call him to an account for all the exercises of the heart. He will search every corner of his soul to determine whether the divine honor or something else is the object of his pursuit. And that's how Paul lived. But notice what word describes Paul's simplicity and sincerity. It's the word godly. If Paul has been honest and straightforward with the Corinthian church and pure in his motives, it has come about because of God. It's a godly simplicity and a godly sincerity, and that's why Paul can boast, and that's why Paul is confident it was all due to God. He is not boasting in himself. He is not ultimately responsible for his conduct among the Corinthians. Only God is. And so Paul continues to define his ministry among the Corinthians. He says, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. It was not according to worldly shrewdness, fleshly wisdom, or human cleverness that Paul exercised his ministry among the Corinthians. It was all due to God's grace. The way the world thinks and interacts and does relationships did not control Paul's ministry. He was entirely dependent upon the grace of God. One commentator says this, it's important to note that Paul envisioned his entire existence, both in public and in private, whether in the mundane affairs of life or in the ministry he discharged at Corinth and elsewhere, as being energized and sustained by the grace of God. His conduct or behavior was governed by the power of God's gracious presence. You see, it was all due to God's grace. If Paul was sincere and straightforward with the Corinthians, 
It was all due to God's grace. If Paul was pure in his motives among the Corinthians, it was all due to God's grace. If Paul didn't act like the world when he dealt with the Corinthians, it was all due to God's grace. What Paul is saying is he's saying this, grace is responsible. Point the finger at grace. Grace did it all, not me. And if God's grace is the source of Paul's ministry among the Corinthians, what does that imply? That ministry empowered by God's grace glorifies God. When we do ministry that is empowered by God's grace, he gets the glory. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. Serve in the strength that God supplies and then he gets the glory. And some people right now, some men are stepping up to serve in the nursery because they're the ladies are gone. Maybe you just came out of serving. If you served by God's grace, guess who gets the glory? God does. But how did God's grace come to Paul? Did it just show up and knock on his door? Did Paul take a pill every day? It said, grace, take one a day. And how did it come? Let me infer from the text that Paul prayed for it. That Paul didn't just assume, that Paul knew his weakness and Paul said, God, I need your grace. I need your power to do ministry. And I would also suggest, because verse 11 says so, that other people prayed for Paul and God's grace came to him. So let me ask you today, do you want to minister in such a way that God empowers you by his grace? He gets the glory and others get the benefit. If you do, you have to pray. You have to ask God, would you give me your grace? And let me tell you that God loves to answer that prayer. You know why? If he gives you the grace, then who gets the glory? He does. So if you say, God, give me grace, what are you asking God? God, will you get glory through my life? God, I can't do it. I cannot work with two-year-olds, God. I need your grace today. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing for me. I cannot work with him. Would you give me your grace? And God is up there saying, Of course I want to give you my grace because it will benefit others. But more importantly, my glory will go on display. See, God loves for his glory to go on display. And some of the very tangible ways he does that is when you step up and serve in a place that you feel totally uncomfortable and you say, give me your grace. What's the application here? One, if there's any success in ministry here at Grace, Point the finger at grace. Don't point the finger at Grace Baptist. Don't point the finger at any of the servants of Grace Baptist. Point the finger at grace, God's grace, and say, we had success that day because God in his grace enabled us. Point the finger at grace. Secondly, give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't assume that you know why someone does what they do. You do not know people's motives. But so many of us function in the body of Christ. We assume we know why somebody is doing something. And we don't. Misunderstandings will only breed confusion and a slew of other church-destroying sins. And that's why Paul's writing the Corinthians, to clear up some misunderstandings to let him know that he does ministry among them because of God's grace. He also wants to let them know our next point is that misunderstanding may disqualify us 
from experiencing mutual joy. If we don't understand what we're supposed to be about as a pastor and flock, we may disqualify ourselves from experiencing mutual joy together now and on the day of Christ when we stand before our Lord and give account. Look at verse 13 to 14. Let me show you where I'm getting at. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, so that, and here's the purpose, on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Here, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians that they can trust him. They can read his letters and clearly understand. In fact, Paul says, I hope you fully understand. You, you don't get it yet. You partially understand what's happening. Paul says, I want you to get it. The purpose of fully understanding what Paul is trying to say is so that they will both have mutual joy and boasting on the day of Christ when they stand before their Lord together. Verse 13 begins with the word for, which is a very small but a very important word. Paul has just told the Corinthians that his ministry among them has been done in honesty and purity, not in underhanded and scheming ways. It was all due to God's grace. And now he wants to give evidence for or proof of his ministry, his letters, the letters that he has written to them. Paul is saying that what he has written to the Corinthian church is plain as day. They don't have to read between the lines. They can read it and understand it. They don't need a seminary degree. They don't need to look for some Bible code. It's plain as day. Paul says, you've partially understood what I'm saying to you, but I want you to fully understand and quit buying into the lies of the false teachers. The question we have to ask ourselves is, why would Paul care if he was being attacked by some false teachers? Why not just let it go, Paul? You know your heart. Your conscience has cleared you. You just said so, Paul. Just let it go. You just said the testimony of your conscience is this that you've not acted in these underhanded and scheming ways. So Paul, your conscience is screaming at you. Hey, we were were not impure in our motives. Simmer down. Your conscience is screaming at you, Paul. Why not just let it go, Paul? You know your heart. They're lying. Just why are you so obsessive compulsive about this, Paul? Here's why. Because Paul realizes that there is so much more at stake here than his reputation and clearing his name. This whole big mess of misunderstanding has big time implications for the final day. Look at verse 14 again. So that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. You see, the Corinthians had lost their eschatological focus. They had lost sight of what really mattered. They were focused on the here and now, listening to the lies of the false teachers. And Paul is trying to write to them and remind them that they will stand before the Lord with Paul and give an account one day as to how they responded to his apostleship. Very sobering words indeed. How a church body responds to its leaders has big-time implications for the final day. And Paul, the ever-loving pastor, wants this congregation to be able to stand before the Lord with him and experience mutual joy together. So far from being obsessively compulsive about how the church views him, Paul's pastoral concern is how will the Lord view the church on that day? He's saying... I don't care how you see me right now. That's not important. 
What's important is how will the Lord see you on that day? See, what this verse is teaching us is that there is coming a day when churches will stand before their Lord with their pastor and pastors, and both the pastor and the church will give account as to how they responded to each other. My hero, Lemuel Haynes, lived 1753 to 1833. He has some very sobering words that I want to read to you to better prepare you and to better prepare me for the day when we will all stand before the Lord together and give account to the Lord as to what we did as Grace Baptist Church. It was a funeral sermon, actually, From 1797, titled The Important Concerns of Ministers and the People of Their Charge, Haynes is writing, his text was a sister text to our 2 Corinthians passage. He preached out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, where Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church, telling them the same things. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. And in this sermon, Lemuel Haynes writes to pastors and to congregations to warn them that what they do as a church body has big time implications for the day that they stand before the Lord. To the pastors, warning of the coming day when they will give account to the Lord for their ministry and their sermons, Haynes says this, it will be necessary that the motives by which ministers have been influenced in their work, be brought into view. For without sincerity of heart, they can never execute their office with any degree of true faithfulness and are a high affront to God and a vile imposition on the people. That's not good. I know it's kind of puritanical language. That's not good. At the day of judgment, the doctrines with which a minister has addressed his hearers must be examined. A careful inquiry will be made whether an empty parade of learning, elegance of style, etc. have been the main things with which a people have been entertained, tending only to gratify vain curiosity and to fix the attention of the hearers on the speaker. Has pleasing men had greater influence on our composing and delivering our sermons than the glory of God and the good of souls? Strong words for pastors. Strong words for me. My motives and my messages will be opened up before you and before me. A careful inquiry will be made. Why did I preach the way I preached? Why did I share what I shared? Was it just to show you that I'm a great speaker or that I'm smart or anything? Or was it because I love you and want God's glory to be seen in your life and your joy unleashed? That's coming for me. But Haynes also addressed the church congregations too with very strong words. He says, we must soon meet before the bar of Christ, perhaps before the next Sabbath, to have our sermons and our hearing examined by him who is infinite in knowledge and is present in every congregation. That means he's here today. Did we always consider these things? It would tend to abolish coldness, drowsiness, and indifference that too often attend the ministers of the gospel and that formal spirit that is too apparent among hearers. 
how that would check the levity of mind and disorderly behavior that presumptuous creatures often indulge in the house of God. Your next meeting must be before the tribunal of Christ, where those sermons you have heard him deliver in this life will come into view, and also the improvement you have made because of them. Will you, my brethren, be his crown of rejoicing in that day? Now, I'm doing double duty here because I'm going to stand before the Lord as a pastor and as a congregant who set under pastors for years. Lemuel Haynes needs to be heard today by pastors and by churches. You see, what we do here every single week is not to be taken lightly. We will stand before the Lord and give an account. I don't know about you, but that scares my soul. It doesn't scare me in the way that I think we're going to stand there and God says, away with you to hell forever. No, we are secure in the gospel. Okay, we will be with the Lord forever. But there is an accounting that is going to take place that we all will go through with the Lord as individuals and as churches and pastors and elders and pastoral staff. So I say that to sober us up as to what we do here. Not to say that we're going to get up there and if we blow it, the Lord says, away from me, I never knew you. He's not going to say that. Our eternity is secure, but we will give an account. In his book, The Faithful Preacher, recapturing the vision of three pioneering African-American pastors, Tabidi and Yabwili highlights the eternal focus of Lemuel Haynes' sermon that I just read from. Tabidi says this, Haynes' eschatological vision of pastoral ministry was displayed most clearly in a 1798 funeral sermon entitled The Important Concerns of Ministers and the People of Their Charge. In this sermon, Haynes anticipated that the pastor and the congregation would have a special relationship to one another in the coming judgment of Christ, where the congregation would be the hope or joy or crown of rejoicing in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. However, the second coming of Christ and the accompanying judgment of ministers and their people was, in Haynes' estimation, a proposition filled with both joyous promise and striking terror at stake. More than merely the souls of pastors and congregants was the very glory of God himself. And that's why we do what we do here. Let me read it again. At stake, more than merely the souls of pastors and congregants was the very glory of God himself. Whether the character of the Redeemer was properly displayed before his creation through the ministry of which both minister and member were a part. If the pastor was faithful, the congregation and their shepherd would enjoy a special intimacy with one another, an intimacy deepened by their commendation of the pastor and of the pastor's recommendation of his people before the Lord himself. However, if either the pastor or the congregation were unfaithful, their eternal relationship would be one of accusing and exposing the other before God and his son. For everlasting good or for eternal ill, the pastor and the congregation were joined in a most solemn union before God. Haynes concluded, the influence of a faithful or unfaithful minister is such as to affect unborn ages. 
It will commonly determine the sentiments and characters of their successors. And in this way, they may be doing good or evil after they are dead, even to the second coming of Christ. The unfaithful minister would be tried for his treasonous neglect of the souls of the people and the unfaithful congregation would stand to hear the pastor's denouncement of their spiritual apathy and hard-heartedness. Therefore, ministers ought to preach and people ought to listen with death and judgment in view. You see, misunderstanding may disqualify us from experiencing mutual joy. While we do ministry together, while we're alive, we may disqualify ourselves if we don't understand our roles and our relationship and our responsibilities, but even more so on that day. If we lose sight of the fact that we are to be about God's glory, then we'll disqualify ourselves from mutual joy on that day. I want nothing more out of my time here as pastor than to stand with you on that day and hear Jesus say, well done, faithful servants. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm believing is going to happen. That Jesus will say those words to us and it will be a time of boasting and exultation and rejoicing that by God's grace, we did not lose focus as a church I'm hoping for that day. I know it's a heavy sermon. I know it's landing on you heavy. I have hope. It's why I'm telling you this. It's why I'm preaching this message to myself again. It's because I believe that by God's grace, we're going to get there and stand before him and rejoice and say, we did it by his grace. We displayed his glory as a church. We were consumed with the gospel. We shared it with our city and with the nations. I think we're going to make it by God's grace but we should let the weightiness and the gravity of those words fall on us. One last word from Haynes to get a little more practical, but it's heavy, okay? It's heavy, but it's very practical. Taking it down another notch from pastor and his congregation to this. Haynes said this, if ministers and people are to meet each other before the tribunal of Christ as having special business together, then we may conclude that this will be the case with particular families, such as husbands and wives, parents and children. You can say much about each other upon that occasion, having for so long a time composed one family on earth. If ministers in their congregation are to stand before the Lord and give account, what about Husbands and wives. Heavy. All the married people got a little uncomfortable. Why? Because Ephesians 5 says the marriage relationship is to be a picture of Christ and the church. Thank God there's grace. Because how often do our marriages picture Christ and the church? They're pretty fuzzy and blurry at best, right? But we're going to stand before the Lord and say, husband, did you do what you were called to do? Wives, did you do what you were called to do? Parents and children, did you do what you were called to do? I know it's tough. That's why we need your prayers. Paul knew that people were praying for him by grace so that he could minister Those of you whose kids are already grown up, we need you to pray for us. Those of us who are in the trenches of parenting, it's hard. You've been there. We need you to encourage us. We need you to pray for us. Those of you who are married, 
know you need God's grace because it's hard, isn't it? Those of you who are single or engaged are thinking, well, I mean, people talk about marriage being hard, but I love my fiance. It's not going to be difficult. Hey, marriage is tough. And you come to us when it gets tough because we've been there. And parenting is tough with little ones. And those of you with maybe you're expecting and have no children, it is joyous, it is wonderful, but it is hard work. And we're going to give account. So we all need to be praying collectively for one another that God would give us grace to be the church we need to be, the spouse that we need to be, the parents that we need to be, the child that we need to be. To get there on that day, we need God's grace. Parents and children, husband and wife, pastors, elders, staff, and a church body, we need God's grace to get there. If we have successful ministry together now, point to God's grace. If we get there on that day and it's mutual boasting and rejoicing and we say, we did it. We, we shared the gospel with Santa Maria. We shared the gospel with the nations. We worked together for the progress and the joy of the faith of everyone that we knew. If we get there on that day and we can say, and we displayed God's glory as Grace Baptist Church. If we get there on that day, point to God's grace. And then he gets the glory. May God empower us by his grace to be the church that he's called us to be so that he gets glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, we know our weakness. We know our frailty. We know the high demands of scripture and we have failed so much, but thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus' perfect life. Help us to take courage. Father, as marrieds and singles and engaged and parents and young and old help us to take courage that your grace is there and we merely need to call out for it would you help us be the body of christ here in santa maria for your glory in jesus name amen our hope is that today's message empowers you by god's grace to live god's way For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.